friend of mine came back from India a short time ago, and she had gone to visit a particular teacher that she was interested in. And she brought back with her a video of this teacher. And so she shared the video with me. It was kind of interesting, you know, it's so unromantic these days. One doesn't just go travel around and bump into one's teacher. One watches the person on video first <laughs> and then chooses whether one wants to go or not. <laughs> the day of the Dharma bum is over. So I watched the video and it was, it was quite interesting. It was about a two-hour um, video of him with a group of people. And there was one thing that stuck out for me. The rest was just um, his interactions with various people. But at one point, someone put the video right in front of him and um, said something like, you know, what do you want to say to the people back home? <laughs> you know, sort of, a, sort of a corny free-for-all kind of question. And he looked right at the camera and he gave this big, wide, beaming smile, and he said, stay home. <laughs> and then he cracked up, you know. <laughs> and, you know, first of all, I just laughed too. And um, then I started to reflect on it, and it truly was the most powerful thing about the whole, whole video for me, because I saw it on a number of different levels. The first, you know, the literal level, stay home, I really didn't quite believe, because the way his life is, he just sits in his room and people come and go, and he doesn't seem to be bothered or excited or bored or anything. He just sits and people come and go. So in terms of too many people coming, it um, doesn't seem likely that this would be his mind state. The second level was what I was hearing him saying was that you don't have to go anywhere to be liberated. You know, you certainly do not have to come all the ways to India to see me in order to be free. It's inside you right now. And you can stay right in your little hall at IMS <laughs> or CIMC or wherever you are. And it's the same because one carries one's mind and heart around with one. And so, you know, kind of don't waste your time. Stay home. And the third level that I saw, which was probably, or was very definitely the most profound level of this short little statement, was stay home, stay inside of your mind, stay inside of your heart. In other words, stay home home. Don't let the mind wander. Don't let the mind go out and get itself into trouble. Just stay at home within yourself. So this is very striking to me. I really um, felt and heard this very clearly. And it reminded me of something else. When Larry and I went to Thailand several years ago, 
at the end of our visit there, <clears throat> we had a, an, an interview with Mahabua, the, our teacher there. And at the end of this little interview, um, Larry asked Mahabua if he had any advice for us in terms of how we could practice when we got home, when we got away from Thailand, when we came, when we came back to the States. And Mahabua just sat for a moment. He just was quiet. And then he said, just stay inside. <laughs> so it was the same thing, you know, the very much the same thing. Just stay inside. Just stay home. And I think that this is very much what our practice is all about, is staying home. Is staying home inside of the heart, resting within the heart, whatever it is that happens whether external events or internal events, resting with everything that occurs without rejecting, without any kind of violence, without pushing anything away, with the confidence that whatever arises unpleasant will go in its own way at its own time. And that any time we try to urge it on, and make it go faster, it actually slows down that process. And also without holding on and dwelling in any of the things that the mind says, elaborating on, adding on to, moving away from the source, and the source is the heart, is the mind. So basically, staying at home within the heart means being mindful, being present with whatever it is that arises, with bodily sensations, with emotions, with thoughts, with feelings, with moods, everything in this body-mind. Being awake to whatever it is that's occurring. So the question is, why don't we stay at home? Why don't we stay within the heart? Perhaps because we are under this somewhat grand illusion that staying within the heart is not a very good place to be, is a place of suffering. And perhaps meditation, perhaps our practice, is re-educating the heart, is retraining the mind, is looking at our conditioning in a fresh way, and seeing that perhaps it's actually a lot more suffering to look away than it is to look. It's actually a lot more suffering to not be here, to not be present, than it is to be caught up in something or another, whatever that something or another may be. And so we're looking at life, we're looking at our lives, we're looking at our hearts and our minds, and kind of going against the tide of our suffering, I'm sorry, of our conditioning, going against the tide of how we think things are, and really seeing underneath that 
to how things really are. And we see by gently being present, by caring for the heart in a tender way and staying present, that actually things get a whole lot better. And what happens is that it becomes much more enjoyable to be at home within the heart. In other words, if we stay there and if we nurture the heart and if we make it an environment that we want to be in, an environment which has ease in it and happiness and and some coolness and peace, then we're much more likely to want to stay at home. And so the practice is about trying it out and seeing, working with beingness, staying with beingness, and seeing that perhaps it's a lot better to stay inside, to stay at home within the heart, than it is to wander than it is to move away. It's kind of an example, there can be an example used of a thorn that's in one's hand, where when you pull it out, it hurts, and yet one has to pull it out for there to be a healing. So often when we look at something that's difficult, that we don't want to look at, it can feel more intense. You have probably noticed that many, many times that when you look at pain in sort of a sneaky way, it's bad, there's no doubt about that, but um, perhaps there's the fear that if you look at it in a more direct way, it will get more intense. And of course it does. It definitely gets more intense because one is directing one's attention to it. One is being with it in much more of a full way. But what we see is if we can stay with it, if we can keep our attention there, even if it is a bit more intense, that it actually begins to change, that it is not something solid, that it is not permanent, that it does not have a core. And as we stay with anything, we see beyond it. We see that it is impermanent, whatever it is, arising and passing away, that it doesn't have any substantial core to it. And it's only by keeping the mind in the heart that we can learn this, that we can see this. So it requires a leap of faith. And sometimes it requires a lot of leaps over and over again. One leap may not be enough to convince us. And that's why we're practicing maybe 780 leaps later. Ah, maybe this really is the way it is. And so it's, it's... taking a chance, taking a risk each time until the heart is impressed by this reality, until the heart absolutely, completely, utterly knows, has conviction that when it is within itself, there is no suffering. Now, it is important very, very important and very helpful to work with the breath and the body in a sustained way because as we work in a sustained way with the breathing and with the body, what begins to happen is that one is naturally, without a whole lot of effort, inside of the body. 
And then from that natural home, that happens only through being with the breathing and being with the body as much as possible all day long in whatever it is that we're doing. Always coming back to the breath, to the body. What happens is that it becomes something that we can count on. It becomes a real refuge. It becomes its natural home. Not a place that we return to, but we live out of this sense of being in the breath and being in the body. And then whatever else happens in terms of thoughts, in terms of feelings, in terms of emotions, in terms of events, whatever they may be, we are living out of something. We are living out of what is called the first foundation of mindfulness. And it's called the first foundation of mindfulness because it really is the foundation of practice to live out of the body, out of the breathing. Everything else can be happening and mindfulness can be with it. Mindfulness can extend itself from this sense of being with the body to anything, to everything. But it gives one an enormous amount of stability. It gives an enormous amount of steadiness. And so we're not just moving to thoughts and emotions and feelings, states of mind. We're coming from a place. We're coming out of this vehicle of the body, which really can't be emphasized too much. You know, sometimes I see it as this big secret because nobody believes it. <laughs> it's not that it's a secret. It's, it's um, something very clear that, that the Buddha said in very simple ways and did not hide it until you got to a certain point in practice. You know, it's right here, right now that it, it is said. And yet, somehow, it takes quite a while before we really believe it, before we're willing to do it, before we're willing to sustain the attention. So I, I sort of look at it as a secret, because one discovers it, it's said, and then somewhere along the line, one really gets it. And, ah, it's like, you know, it's like nobody, sometimes people will come in into interviews and they'll say, you didn't say, you know, something like that. Whereas that was all that was said. It's just not easy to hear until we do it some and, and practice it some. And do it a lot and practice it a lot. Yeah, <laughs> forget about the word some. <laughs> So what happens when we're not rooted in the heart or grounded inside? What happens when we move outside? What's that process about? The word for this process is um, papancha, which means proliferation. It means that the mind starts to make up stories and then to believe in these stories. This is what proliferation is. And it's what Larry has talked about in terms of the dog running after the bone. Something happens, and then the mind, the heart, runs after it and runs with it and makes up some kind of a story about it, whatever it may be. Some stories are very dramatic and affect our lives a lot. And other stories don't really matter much. They just come and go. Some are stories that we find ourselves acting out of and getting in trouble about. Um, they really vary. What's important is to see what happens when the mind proliferates. 
it's very helpful to kind of um, trace back suffering, like how does suffering occur, and trace it back. And what you can see, what we can see, is that suffering occurs because of not wanting things to be the way they are, because of attachment. Wanting to hold on to something that can't be held on to because it's impermanent like everything else. Or wanting to push something away that can't be pushed away because everything arises and, and ceases in its own time. It's all part of nature and can't be pushed around. And then before attachment is either craving or aversion or some sense of confusion. These, these are the states that are right before attachment. And then if you go back before that, what there is is feeling. And feeling doesn't mean emotion here. Feeling means either a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling or a neutral feeling, one of the three. And then before feeling is contact. And contact is when a sense organ comes in contact with an object. So for instance, the ear coming in contact with the sound. That together with consciousness, with knowingness, is contact. So it's the sense organ, one has to have a sense organ, and then it's an object and there has to be an object, and then consciousness, and the three of them together create contact. Contact is happening in every moment. There is something happening through one of the senses in every moment. And in this way of looking at things, the mind is also included. So it's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. I had to have this part written down. I always forget one. (laughs) And then to start from the other way, there's contact, these three things coming together. There's an, an, um, a feeling that arises very immediately after contact. They're so close together, it's very, very difficult to separate them. It's really quick that there's a feeling. For instance, there's a sound, and then there is an immediate pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then, if that feeling isn't seen, then it turns into craving or aversion or confusion. And then, if that isn't seen, it turns into into attachment, which is the same as saying that it turns into suffering. So, the interesting thing about this and how this applies to staying at home and releasing ourselves from suffering is that there's what's called a weak link in this chain of suffering. And the weak link is right after feeling. So there's contact, which there always is. One can't do anything about contact. It's always happening as long as we're alive. And then there's feeling, and this is the way it is. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then if one can pick up on the feeling, be aware of the bare feeling, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, then there is space. There can be space. It doesn't have to follow this progression. It doesn't have to go into craving, aversion, confusion. So, of course, it doesn't have to go into attachment equals suffering. So that's the interesting place. That's kind of the exciting place. 
in practice, is that one can be aware of feeling, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. And what happens when we are is that we see that feeling is just feeling. It's no more, it's no less. It is just a feeling. It is what it is. Many times, of course, um, many, many times, the mind is going to not take this kind of gap that it gets and go on into craving, aversion, confusion. But the sooner we can see it, the better. The more mindful we can be as this is happening, the better. And what happens is that a space gets created. There's a gap there. There's a spaciousness. And with that gap and that spaciousness, we become able to respond to various contacts, to various situations, rather than always having to mechanically react. This is where the freedom comes in. It doesn't mean that we aren't choosing to act sometimes, because there are situations, of course, this doesn't, isn't to make us vegetables or turnips or, you know, passive. But to bring in the element of choice is what makes it free and alive and possible to change patterns rather than working in the same rut time after time again and not knowing how to get free. So when we look at it in this way, we can see that we don't have to have pleasure and we don't have to not have pain. There's a little bit more freedom in the whole process. We can see that our tendency is to try to collect that which is present, try to get as many pleasant experiences as possible, and try to avoid that which is unpleasant. And this sounds very rational and sane. I mean, it's an intelligent thing to do. The only problem is that it doesn't work. That's the only problem in it, but it's kind of a major problem. Because all these things are part of nature. Pleasure arises and it, and it disappears, and it doesn't matter if we want it to be around longer. Whatever it is, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't take our personal feelings into account. It just arises, passes away. It's impersonal. It's part of nature. And the same way with pain. There are situations, absolutely, one can and should avoid pain. There are other situations where it's not possible to avoid pain. And so if we try to avoid it, and it's not possible, then we're creating much more pain for ourselves. So in other words, with this whole thing, there is choice rather than just a blind reactivity. There's room if we can see feeling as feeling. I'll give you some examples in a, in a moment. This cuts the compulsive aspect within the mind. It makes everything not quite as automatic. If we're not mindful, if we're not aware, this change just happens, and it's automatic. It's just what happens. When we're mindful, it's not automatic, and we can see feeling as feeling, and then choose from there. When we're caught in that which is pleasant, we often overestimate it. This is just a very interesting thing to see. One has an idea, when I get home, I'm going to fill in the blank. 
we all have our, our own thing. Whether it's see a particular person or, or write a particular letter or have a particular kind of food that has been missing here, a big plate of spaghetti or whatever, chocolate. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't be tempting you here. <laughs> whatever. Whenever there's that, um, that kind of feeling of pleasure in the mind, there's often an overestimation of it. And then we get home. And that's not the first thing we do, go run and make ourselves a bowl of spaghetti or you know, write that letter that, of course, I have to write that feels pleasurable to be composing in the mind rather than being with the breathing. Um, or you know, see that particular person. That's not usually the first thing we do. We do other things. And maybe when we do it, it's not what it's been cooked up in the mind to be. It's just what it is. The thought of spaghetti is not spaghetti. It's just a thought. I obviously have spaghetti mind. Um, So through this, we can see the impermanence of feelings, and we don't have to identify with them as being me and mine. At the same time, we're becoming more intimate with ourselves. We're getting to know ourselves in the way that we truly are and not that the way that we think that we are, that we want to be, but as we truly are. And instead of that space being filled absolutely necessarily with craving or aversion or delusion, instead that space can be filled with much more refined and subtle and happier emotions, love and kindness and tenderness and, and nonviolence, benevolence. A benevolence can fill that space. And it allows for freshness. It allows for the possibility of not just repeating and repeating and repeating our patterns, whatever that may be, whatever the patterns may be. So let me give you an example of what I I mean by this whole thing, because it may be a bit too theoretical. I'll tell you a story. some time ago, probably five or six years ago now, I was by myself doing a month-long retreat in a suburban house, out obviously in the suburbs. But it was it, it was a su- <laughs> 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 the same as the guy who died. But anyhow, <laughs> can't get away from it. Um, but it was really what I mean is that it was really a suburban-style house out in the suburbs. And, <laughs> and what's important about that is that it reminded me of the house I grew up in, which was also in the suburbs. <laughs> and for the first, I was totally by myself there. Um, for some reason, I, I was borrowing this house from some friends, and for some reason, they didn't have any curtains on the windows. And um, there were all these woods out in back and just no curtains. In the daytime, I loved it. I was in Bliss City because it was so peaceful and so beautiful, and the practice was going really, really well. And I just was so happy to be alone and to be practicing. And, you know, I was doing what we're doing here. I wasn't reading, I wasn't writing, I wasn't talking on the phone. I was just sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And, of course, I had to cook my own food, but I kept things very, very simple. So the first five days were fine. Gradually, I began to notice that as dusk came around each evening, there began to be this sense of impending doom. You know, there was sort of the, the, if I could sing it, it was sort of like da, 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 da. 
<laughs> every single evening at 6 o'clock or whenever it started to get dark. It took me a while to even identify that that feeling was there. It was very hard for me to even feel or acknowledge or know that the feeling was there. I was basically in a state of terror, pushing it away the whole time. So it was good news to be able to identify at least the doom, the sense of doom. However, it wasn't great to identify it because <laughs> it just you know, kept happening. And the nights got harder and longer and more fearsome. And it was a house where there were a lot of um, noises. It was in kind of an old house. And <laughs> there were a lot of little creaks in the, in the floor, lots and lots of noises. And it had a basement. These are two important facts. <laughs> so I would be sitting in the, um, the kitchen, trying to sit and trying to just be and be with my breathing. And all around me, there were all these little creaks happening. And I was in a total state of, it was a nightmare. I was definitely in a state of, of, this is horrible. I definitely have to get out of here. And then the next morning would come, and I'd be so happy. And I, I wanted to stay. So I kind of went through this routine quite a while, for quite a few days. I also knew that I'd been carrying this fear around since I was a little kid, being afraid of, of not being alone, but being afraid of being alone in the dark. Um, you know, by woods where there were no curtains, I couldn't feel enclosed. <laughs> and I remember when I was a little kid, I could never be sleeping in bed without something on top of me. I had to have at least a sheet. So here I am, it's July, and I have this big quilt that I have to have on me every single night. This was, you know, to create a little bit of, of safety, a sense of safety. So what began to happen, I really felt quite desperate. And I had a few Dharma books with me, and I wrecked my brain, you know, how to, how to work with fear, fear. Not just fear, but fear, fear. And because it didn't feel like anything I had experienced in a very long time, probably since I was a kid. It, I had never experienced this kind of fear. And I'm sure it was because I was being with it, basically. I wasn't getting away from it in the ways I usually had. I was just determined to, to stay with it. And I racked my brain, I looked through my Dharma books, nothing. There was, there was nothing that um, seemed comforting to me, or seemed that I could really do. You know, seemed, seemed real to me, because the images were so strong. Finally, and this is so beautiful, actually, because um, it just shows how much the Dharma is nature, and the Dharma is inside of us. And it's not even about Buddhism. It's about finding out how things operate and how things work inside of ourselves, inside of oneself. And so I hadn't paid attention to this whole theory I just outlined to you um, until after I read up on it. But before then, I hadn't really paid much attention to this chain of suffering and weak, weak link part of it and where I could cut it. But what I began to notice, because I had to, is that every time a sound happened, every single time there was a creak, immediately my mind would create an image. Immediately my mind would kick up an image. And that image was horrible. That image was of a, a monster, or a ghost, or a very, very, very big man with 
very, very big feet. <laughs> Seriously, it was like, you know, size 20 feet. <laughs> so I wasn't hearing the sound as a sound, I was seeing it as a gigantic foot. You know, of course, about to come and get me. That was the other part of it. But because I wasn't seeing it, I was lost in the terror about it. Once I began to see that it was happening because of the sound, because I had an ear that was able to listen to this object that was happening, and because there was knowingness and consciousness, out of that, there was an image, there was a feeling, which was terrifically unpleasant, there was aversion, there was attachment, there was suffering. But it was so interesting because it was a life lesson. You know, I hadn't heard about this so much before, and I discovered it. And this is, this is the beauty of the Dharma, is that it's not outside, it's not in books, it's not in anybody. Um, our talks, hopefully, are just pointers because of our own experience. But it's in there for all of us to just discover if there's no place to find it. And it really taught me this because I was very much on my own. I didn't have any, anything or anybody to rely on. I, I have to admit, I made one phone call. <laughs> I called Larry. <laughs> he said, stay home, stay there. <laughs> and it was, it was very helpful because, um, you know, he was basically saying there's nothing to be afraid of, which I didn't want to hear at all. But I also did want to stay. And it helped to create a tiny, tiny bit of calmness. What's very important in this whole process is that it's not about trying to control our feelings. It's not about repressing. And it's not about when we catch ourselves suffering, saying, oh, gee, I wish I'd caught it at feeling. Or I wish I'd, you know, known that sound or that thought or that smell or whatever it may be. It's about being mindful whenever we can. It's being mindful right now with whatever's happening. As the mind gets quieter, as the heart gets more still, we can see more clearly this chain of suffering. And there comes about a certain trust, a certain trust in the process, a certain faith in the process. We see that every moment that we're mindful, every moment that we're awake, deconditions the mind. Each moment that we're aware of whatever it is that's happening, regardless of the content, and we're not pushing it away, and we're not pulling it towards, and we're just allowing it to be, is a moment of freedom. It's worth it. Even if one has forgotten for the last half an hour or longer, it's worth it to be mindful right in this moment, right here and now. Because every moment is deconditioning the mind. Every moment is a moment of freedom. You know, often we think, I wasn't mindful, so why should I bother? But we do. But to, to bother really makes a difference. It makes an enormous difference. It just gets stronger and stronger. And we can only be mindful right now. If we're thinking about how we haven't been mindful, we're filled with regret, and we're lost in a past that isn't happening. We can only be mindful right now. 
staying at home also brings us closer to other people. It's not isolating. It's not separating to stay at home within oneself, within one's heart, to stay inside. It actually brings us into a deeper, more intimate contact with others. It eases the boundaries because we're less defensive, we're less defended, we're much more relaxed and at ease with ourselves, less worried about who we are and who we want to appear to be, less worried about trying to become someone and less worried about being competitive and comparing ourselves to others in a favorable or an unfavorable light. We're much more at ease within the heart. Someone asked the um, Dalai Lama once who he hung out with, you know, like who he let his hair down with. Well, he couldn't do that because he... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> figuratively. Um, who, he, who his buddies were and who he felt he could hang around with, you know, who was on his level in a, in a world of nincompoops, who was on the level of the Dalai Lama was kind of that question. And I don't know if you know how he talks. He has great voice. It's very deep, and he's just very kind of casual. And he said, oh, it's no problem. Everybody is my peer. Everybody. I can hang out with everybody. And the question, you know, who, who is your peer? Who is your friend? Everybody is my peer. Meaning no one is higher, no one is lower than me. This is real freedom. Um, let me just end with a quote from Ajahn Chah, which is called The Simple Path. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us, two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Just rest with things as they are. Give up craving. Give up aversion. This is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana. But it all comes back to this, just let it all be. Step over here where it's cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? I think the end of this is is what I was speaking about in terms of being willing to take the risk, being willing to take that leap of faith until the heart knows so deeply that there's no way anything, anybody can tell it that it's not so. Why don't we sit for just a minute? Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.